0: Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. Um, that's me, Ethan Renault. I am not sure which episode number this is because I'm recording it several weeks before it'll be released. I have the Covenant series that I'm working on right now, and those are not done yet. So whenever I'm done with those, I'm going to release this series. This is the first of a four-part series on Hell. Um, I'm in this like theological discussion group. Um, on Facebook with other guys I went to college with, and we are reading a book called Four Views on Hell. And I'm going to summarize each one real quick, just so that um, when we reference them later in the episode, you'll know what we're referring to. So uh, the four views are annihilationism, meaning if somebody's not saved, as soon as they die, they cease to exist everywhere. They're completely annihilated. Um, Or another part of that might be that they're punished for their sins for a little while and then are annihilated and cease to exist. Um, The next one is eternal conscious torment, which is the one we're discussing today, meaning that you die and you are, this is also called the traditional view of hell, uh, where you just suffer eternally um, and you're aware of it and it never ends. And um, I mean, the name speaks for itself, eternal conscious torment. Uh, another one is purgatory, meaning that after death, there is still time to choose um, choose Christ or choose suffering. And then, basically, you go to eternal conscious torment after purgatory. And the last one is universalism, meaning that um, they don't believe everyone is saved, but they believe everyone will ultimately be saved. So they may go through a time of purification go through a time of hell and suffering after death, but eventually they'll turn toward Christ um, in the end, and in the end, everybody will be saved, and that's universalism. So when we refer to those, those are the four views that we're referring to. Um, I did this episode with my friend Garrett Saul. I went to Moody with him, and he's a pastor now out on the East Coast, and um, you'll be able to tell that we um, are catching up a little bit on the episode because we haven't talked like in person outside of our theological discussions, um, basically since we were in college together. Um, A couple other things. Um, There's like, basically I, I did my best to adjust the audio. So I set the microphone just next to my computer. So my voice sounds like this, but his voice is coming just through my computer speakers. So I did my best to clean up the audio, make his voice louder, make mine quieter. So that it's somewhat balanced, but it's still not perfect. Hopefully, in the second part of this series, um, I'll get Garrett his own microphone, and the quality will be much more balanced out. But for this time, um, I made it as best as I could. But the conversation is so interesting, I want to post it anyway. I recommend you listen all the way through. There's also a couple points where my roommates (laughs) were being loud in the other room, so you can kind of hear them, but it's not a huge deal. Lastly... As always, huge shout out to my producer mark bretta um, he's the man he's always posting these, always getting stuff going. If you want to help he and I keep this podcast going because hosting and posting these is not free, you can donate to patreon.com slash ethan Renault uh, you can check that out. you can donate as little as one dollar a month so it's really not a huge commitment um, you know that's cheaper than a latte and you're getting all this theological education. So if you feel compelled to give and help this podcast, as well as the other things I do, the blogs and the books, uh, keep going, head over to patreon.com slash Ethan and help us out. So I think that's about it. So, um, hope you enjoy this episode. Also remember, you can always give me feedback via EthanReno.com or email Ethan at EthanReno.com. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, here is Eternal Conscious Torment View of Hell with my friend Garrett Saul.
1: What's up?
0: Hey Garrett, how are you?
1: Pretty good, Lithian. Long time no see. Can you hear me
0: okay? Yep, that's fine.
1: Great. How have you been?
0: Really good. I'm getting over a cold right now, so I'm still coughing and sick and everything, but. Yeah, not too bad. How about you?
1: Doing all right myself. I feel a little tickled in the back of my throat, so I'm glad we're separated digitally at this point. Because, yeah. You know, I don't want to give me the coronavirus or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I hope that's not what it is. But.
1: Well, thanks for uh, wanting to read a book about hell with me um, and to discuss all of it, so.
0: Yeah, I've been excited, or maybe not excited, but I've been really interested in it.
1: Excited about how?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I've been really interested in it. I just finished up Love Winds too, okay. for the first time. I'd never read that before. But... I read you post about it. Oh, you did?
1: Yep.
0: Yeah, what do you think? Have you read the book?
1: No, I, I, I haven't. Uh, in fact, when I was you know, at, at Moody, and, and I, was, I think it was a freshman when it came out, sophomore something like that one of the older guys on my floor he bought it read it put it on you know the altar for free stuff and wrote a sticky note on it heresy 101 (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i was just like you know it seems interesting uh but i was just reading other things at the time but yeah i thought your article was insightful in that you know it can like when when a book that has caused a firestorm in the world of evangelicalism, um, is you know read by someone with theological understanding. You, you can like come to it and critique it well and see where it is helpful or not. But I can see how if it you know if a new believer was reading this, they'd be like, "Oh yeah," right? Not really engaged with the scripture at the most fundamental levels, uh, which is understanding how we interpret, understanding our cultural and everything, um, being finite creatures, mm-hmm. um, and not having a lens for uh, interpretation and doing what a lot of people do is, you know, taking the Bible at face of value, which you can for a lot of it, you know, um, like when Jesus says, hey, if you believe me, you will have eternal life. All right, sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, looking at that over time and what does eternal life look like? And as our thoughts of the kingdom grow yeah. So sorry if my thoughts were a yeah. incoherent. You know, it's
0: eight o'clock in my time. I just <laughs> put my three kids to bed. So. Oh, nice. No, that's that's good. That's basically the same thing I said. Is like, you know, all the pastors like John Piper who got upset about it. It's like they're worried about the sheep. You know, they're worried about the people who will pick it up and have that exact reaction. So I can see why that could be alarming. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what did you think about the chapter?
0: Um, This one, I did end up getting through all the responses. um, So I got through all those. I felt like, I mean, I can go through and see the places I drew little lines, but I felt like when he went through the 10 passages on hell, I felt like those got a little redundant, which is to be expected. So I just kind of (laughs) skimmed the later ones but um, yeah, um, well, let me ask you this, going into it, which which of the four views do you think you align with most?
1: So, I mean, for me, you know, traditionally the eternal, uh, you know, conscious torment ECT view was the one that I align with most. I mean, it's one confessionally that my denomination, that I'm a part of Christian Reformed Church, Um, confesses, you know, it's in our (laughs) Catechism, Belgian Confession, Um, but I was actually this afternoon curious if we had a position statement on how uh, the Christian Reformed Church has position statements on marriage and gambling and just a whole bunch of various other things, Mm -hmm. and it didn't. Oh, interesting. I mean, I can see why they might not have one because it's in their confessions. Um, It's like, why do we need one? But To me, it seems that that can be revisited because, um, I've been reading a lot of N.T. Wright lately, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of getting in deeper to Pauline studies, um, perhaps might go that way in the distant future for, uh, postgraduate work. Um, and seeing the New Testament in more of its context and how kind of apocalyptic that, uh, the passages on how were spoken of, especially in the uh, all of that discourse in Matthew, which he references several times. Mm-hmm. Um, Burke, Burke does in um, his book, and how, like, thinking as I'm reading what he's saying, like, I wonder how Jewish people would have heard this, mm-hmm. and how are we, like, reading our cultural context into it? I mean, everybody does it, no matter where you are, right? Um, you can't escape that, but I- I'm wondering if we can get to a more Accurate understanding if we could read you know primary source documents about how Jewish people understood you know hell or something mm-hmm. like that um, and yeah I felt like this thing has got redundant uh, too um, and I think that um, I forget the name of the guy who is an annihilationist or whatever but I thought his critiques of the first chapter were just um, really good and how. <laughs> Uh, Burke was saying, hey, um, you know, this is, you know, he kind of took the Bible like face value here, and especially, you know, he's taking Isaiah, which is like prophetic, poetic literature given in a context, you know, and a lot of it speaks you know, about the future, but like what is, what is the theological trajectory of the book of Isaiah? And are you just like ripping passages out of Isaiah in order to mm-hmm. prove your view of eternal conscious torment or like how was isaiah using those passages you know it felt like a lot of proof texting which is like you know if you're going to try to prove your point you can't like escape that but it just seemed like boom here here here's what it is and
0: mm-hmm.
1: the annihilationist guy was kind of like you know let's take a step back and try to think canonically so i th- i thought and i think that thinking canonically is what we need to do because there are certain things that can't be settled by just Hebrew and Greek syntax. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you can't just exegete one verse in isolation. You have to be thinking about the trajectory of Scripture, which takes a lot more work, is a lot more messier, more open for interpretation and dialogue, which I think is good. So, yeah. Especially if it sounds like I'm inside of a shower, it's just downpouring here where I'm at.
0: So. Oh, is it? I don't really hear it. Um, yeah, I had similar thoughts. Um, actually, um, have you ever listened to Preston Sprinkle's podcast, Theology in the Raw? Uh, no, I should, though. Yeah. He's the one, the uh, general editor of this book. And a couple of weeks ago, he released two podcasts um, on why he holds the annihilationist view. And like part one and two. And they, that kind of... I think those podcasts is what prompted me to post that post in the um, arena of dialogue, which then led to this. And so, um, yeah, that kind of, he listening to him explain it for like two hours basically, why he holds that view, really kind of pushed me in that direction. So that's kind of the way I've leaned in the past month or two because um, I had never really given it a ton of thought, the nature of hell, and um, but the Annihilation view seems so... It just seems to make the most sense based on scripture because in that podcast, <coughs> Preston repeatedly says, um, I'm not trying to build an argument on what my emotions say or what philosophically makes the most logical sense. He's like, I want to build an argument based on what scripture says and what scripture seems to be consistent about. So he kind of went through several passages. I'm sure that he did some of the same ones that this guy did. Um, But basically saying the same stuff uh, Stackhouse said in his response to it, which is, like, just because you have an unquenchable fire doesn't mean everybody's going to live through it, you know? Like, if there's an unquenchable forest fire in California, that doesn't mean that people are just walking through the forest suffering for days, (laughs) you know? It just means they're being burnt to a crisp and dying and ceasing to exist. And one
1: thing, too, that I thought... uh Really struck me was how uh, Stackhouse, right, the Annihilationist, when he was responding to Burke, he said Burke's view is, com- is he said that it wasn't really biblical, but it was more an induction. You know, if you sin against an infinite God, then an infinite, you know, price has to be you know paid, and if you need
0: yeah.
1: that infinite price, then you will suffer infinitely, or something like that. Yeah. And then Stackhouse was like. That is, like that deduction, isn't as clear in Scripture as we have traditionally thought it was. Yeah, and to really be looking at the words and the usage in context, like destruction or like the worm and the fire where there's no end, it's like, you know, and you think of people who are resurrected. You know, the Apostles' Creed talks about how we'll be resurrected. And think that you know, we believe in the resurrection of the living and the dead. It's like. Okay. Well, the dead, you know, are definitely going to rise, but then when they are cast out into the place that's made for Satan and his angels, it's like, what will you know happen to us there? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like words of like, you know, destruction or second death.
0: Mm-hmm. it Seems
1: that it implies um, an an end of something. Yeah, of some sort. Um, and yeah, just just thinking about how the eternal conscious torment view, a lot of those are kind of like classic 19th century deductions based mm-hmm. upon how we understand, I mean, what it really comes down to, I think not really what it comes down to, but really how we understand like forensic justification. Like we're thinking about things in legal terms mm-hmm. and thinking about into your right, how justification is framed in legal terms, but it's understood covenantally has really kind of, Opened up my mind more to the idea of an annihilationist perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because in the covenant, it's all about relationships, and relationships can be terminated or not. Yeah. We're relational people in our bodies, and so those are connected. It's like how that all works together. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think that, I mean, we haven't read that chapter yet, or at least I haven't, but when we get to the annihilation view, I think what he's saying is you get punished for what you did and then cease to exist. Is that right? A right summation of it? So, for instance, like Hitler may be punished for like thousands of years and then be annihilated into oblivion. Whereas like that um, example one of them used was like the black teenager who was raised by an abusive dad and an alcoholic mother and then gang banged for a while and then got shot, you know, wouldn't suffer as much as Hitler did. Um, but if they didn't know Jesus or they refused to know Jesus, then they wouldn't suffer as much as Hitler did before ceasing to exist. Is that right?
1: I think that, I think that seems right because, uh, yeah, I think Stackhouse is saying that throughout Scripture, mm-hmm. and I think he's right, that there's different levels of grievances that we can do to other humans, but also against God. You know, there's mm-hmm. the sin, and then the Old Testament talks about the sin with the high hand. You know, there's, like, a a different level. Um, And, I mean, I can, you know, see that, like, you know, how justice is giving what the person deserves. You know, like, is it really justice if, like, someone comes in to your house, steals your TV, your wife stops to, you know, tries to stop them, dude punches your wife in the face and then just walks off, gets caught, and then gets the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Like, is that really justice? Right. Or is that, like, I don't know what you call that. Yeah. Overkill? I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, that's like, that goes back to the Old Testament idea of, like, the eye for an eye type of thing, you know? Right.
1: there's equal. And then, you know, there's levels, too, like, you know, if an ox is released and it gores, you know, someone, then you can, you know, pay a price you know, um, or, you know, the price would be to kill your ox. Uh, but if your ox has been known to gore people and gore someone, then not only do you have to die, but your ox also has to die because you have responsibility for your ox and didn't take the necessary measures in order to make sure it didn't kill anything or
0: anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you're, yeah, I mean, you're familiar probably with the idea that, um, the Code of Hammurabi was the first place to, that they laid down, like, the equal, just punishment, an eye for an eye type of thing. Yep. Yeah. And then a couple hundred years later, Moses puts that into the Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because prior to that time, it was like, you pop out someone's eye, and they're going to kill you and your whole family, you know? So right. this was like the a step toward, like, actual justice. But So talking about that metaphor that he used in the beginning, like, you're pulling the legs off a grasshopper. You don't really do much to him. But he's pulling the leg off a baby and you're like, okay, that's messed up. Um, one of the responses mentioned that too. They're like, well, when we sin, we're not like pulling body parts off of God. Like it doesn't do the same damage to him. Yeah, you, yeah. you would think that um, it doesn't damage him the same way pulling an arm off of a baby would. You know, I think what it does is it creates distance in the relationship, you know, between us and God and, um, Sorry, my roommate's talking to someone outside. They're distracting me.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, Dang it, roommate. I know. Yeah, <laughs> your lucky yours are asleep. Um, um,
1: my other ones on the couch holding laundry. So. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean that that kind of goes off to the whole "what is sin" question. Um, you have to ask what what is sin. But yeah, I don't think that that analogy is quite fitting. Because I grew up with that same idea, um, or maybe a, a similar oh sorry, a similar idea might be like, "I've used this image before, and you can maybe critique it, but like, you start off dangling by a chain over like a pit of lava, And the question is, how many of those chain links in that chain need to break in order for you to fall into the lava? Just one, you know? So like Hitler. Or you, like you've only broken, say, three links of the chain. You've like cussed, lied, and stolen a candy bar. You know it doesn't matter. That's fa- a
1: comfort stuff, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're falling into the lava either way. Um, but I don't know if that exactly. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I'm questioning that metaphor lately, just because. Um, like for the simple reason that. I don't think Hitler is the same as like some kid, maybe a kid who dies at five years old. You know, like I don't, I don't know if they would receive the same. I don't know. It's just t- it's tough to reconcile because, and that that's kind of where the if you do one small sin against an infinite God, you deserve an infinite punishment. I don't know if, I mean, that doesn't even line up with the eye for an eye type of uh, retribution. Right. You know.
1: And, and yeah, this also has to be thinking too, like. <coughs> okay you know, traditional reform theology is, you know, we inherit original sin and original guilt. And um, I'm just thinking, too, like, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, I mean, but I think some people mean to interpret that, like, yeah, you know, you break the chain, you fall into the lava, all have sinned. There's, like, just, you know, zero-sum game. Or I wonder if Paul is talking about More so the state of humanity in light of, you know, the redemption that can be found by being in Christ. And what I've noticed about the discussions of hell and the responses so far is, I think, only, interestingly enough, the Annihilationist, if I remember correctly, (coughs) maybe the Universals too, but I know um, um, Stackhouse, right, he he mentions, like, hey, wasn't, like, the judgment given to Jesus on the cross— and so it's interesting how our discussions of hell are about you know certain texts, but they don't follow the trajectory of Scripture and the Gospels, which focuses on the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his outpouring of the Spirit, which seems to be what the Apostle Paul focuses on, and then talks about eschatology in light of that. And so I'm just wondering, like, where is the talk of, you know, G- Jesus on our behalf taking our judgment for us as a you know someone who you know he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like
1: that. Sh- I think that should reframe our discussion of of hell and under- and try to like figure that out from from the cross. Yeah. Which I think is missing in the first person. <laughs> He's just proof texting stuff about what hell is. It doesn't talk about Jesus at all. Um, and you know, the apostles' creed says we says that Jesus descended into hell. Now, some people could say, well, that means the cross, or that means he was buried, or some people it means that he went to preach to the spirits in prison.
0: Yeah, uh, Second Peter.
1: Difficult, yeah. You know, verse, in, you know, Second Peter, but. I think that if your discussion starts from the cross, that I think you're in a better place to talk about what hell
0: is. Yeah. Don't you think there's a little bit of tension there, though? Because the thing that I bumped into in thinking that way is Jesus knew that he was going to die, and he still made the statements he did. And then Paul also knew that Jesus had died and suffered for us um, and risen again. And he still made the statements that he did. You know? Um, same with the other all the New Testament books. So why would they still make those statements if they were completely aware of the cross and Christ's suffering, you know?
1: Right. And I think in the response of uh I think it was either was it the universalist guy or the Purgatory guy? I don't remember, but I think he responds to that by saying, like I think it was the Universalist guy. Uh he responds to that by saying Well, you know, it would completely, you know, destroy the the force of the warning if it's like, hey, you know, fear him who, you know, can't only kill the body but can kill the body and the soul. But don't worry, you're going to be okay in the end. It's like, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: know, his his objection to that was like, oh, well, you know, God is (laughs) the whole picture. You know, in those moments, because we have to take those warnings seriously. But in the end, everything will be okay. But I don't, I don't really buy that at all, um, because it's just like you're just making an assumption that you know the completed trajectory of, you know, scripture. And so you're saying that just relegating these as warnings that now that we have a, a bigger understanding, they're not that big of a deal, you know, it can work both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Are you talking about his analogy of like the police officer saying, if you keep doing that, you're going to go to jail, right. but don't worry, you're going to get out eventually, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think that, that, won't work either, but I think there has to be, you know, something to say that, you know, how, I think we have to think about how judgment works, and I'm thinking about Jesus in John 3, 16, 17, and 18, when, you know, that famous passage, you know, God so loved the world, but then two verses later, it's like, but if you don't believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God remains upon you, hmm. and so, um, yeah, that doesn't get preached too often, but. Um,
0: well, because in verse 17, he says, for I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it, right? Right. So that's a pretty, yeah.
1: And then in verse 18 it says, but if you don't believe, then the wrath yeah. of God remains upon you. Hmm. And so, I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, those being in Adam and in Christ, and I think that Christ's death and resurrection reconstitutes what reality is. And so people are either in Christ or in Adam, and those who are you know, in Adam are those who don't, you know, aren't participating in Christ by the Spirit. It's those who haven't heard the gospel message and responded in faith, um, which I think makes room for, you know, the either eternal conscious torment view or annihilationist view. Um, but I don't think the universalist view is really an option. But
0: Yeah, um, I don't know if Robin is a guy or a girl, but their response I felt like was kind of the weakest one. Um, especially when she used the, or he, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. Um, they use the, the example of the mother and the daughter going to heaven. Like the, the mother goes to heaven, but does it really, is it really happy and hopeful if she knows that her daughter's in hell? I was like, that's like the weakest argument you could possibly make.
1: Yeah. I thought about that too. it's, and, and, um, yeah, I actually underlined that, and my question for that was, it's like, well, I think that if you're in heaven, and you know, the new heavens and new earth with Jesus, I think that your redefinition of happiness, or I think your your happiness would be redefined in light of, I don't know, maybe seeing the source of all joy face to face.
0: I mm-hmm. mean, <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: it's just like perhaps what we are concerned about now. Will be transformed um and and you know and maybe this is uh points for the eternal conscious torment which you know it's like well we'll be seeing jesus and i'll be able to see how how you know happy we could, we are for justice being being done or something like that mm. which i don't necessarily you know that doesn't you know really sit right with me either it's like yeah we're going to be thumbs up for all eternity while people are consciously you know consciously being tormented forever because they refuse jesus
0: like
1: i don't think that's right (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um,
0: yeah because you have the parable of um lazarus and the rich man you know like he's in abraham's bosom and he he can communicate with the guy who's in hell but at the same time that's also a parable jesus is telling so it's like is that actually what it's like? Like they can talk to each other, and like it's like no, Jesus is clearly making a point about like wealth and poverty and inequality, and
1: yeah, <laughs> it's clearly about the nature of hell or something, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, other than that, I don't, I can't really think of any examples um, of people who are in Christ. Being aware of the other people, um, not in Christ, you know, outside. Um, so I I don't know. It's like, will we be in such a state of bliss and joy that we are unable, you know? Because in Revelation it says like there will be no tear; every tear will be wiped away from their eye. So like obviously we we can't carry sadness with us into um, the eternal state of being in God's presence. So like.
1: I mean, maybe. It says that every tear will be wiped away from their eyes, but what generates those tears?
0: Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, perhaps it's metaphorical to, you know, God making all things right, you know, Mm -hmm. and the things that are sad, you know, coming untrue, the classic kind of like C.S. Lewis uh, type thought, but maybe there is a sense in which that we'll be able to, you know, experience, you know, sadness, but Hmm. to be shown what is, you know, yet to come. And then, you know, like, you know, the parable that Jesus says about the three servants, we can actually enter into the joy of our master, Hmm. Um, which is, sounds more of like, not like an instantaneous thing, like, oh, I'm so happy all the time, but Hmm. more of a transformational process, um, (laughs) which Perhaps that might not be the point he's making in the parable, and I could be reading too much into the language itself. Um, so that could be, yeah, you know, to be aware of that.
0: Um, oh, I found it. In Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So it seems like there wouldn't be be room for like those feelings or emotions there, you know. Yeah. But I still I mean, I I am not convinced about the universalist argument. Um, but I am more open, I think in the past couple months than I have been in my life because I've never really considered it in depth before.
1: Um, I'm open to having my mind changed, you know, it's like, uh, you know, a with Crowder, right. You know, so whatever, you know, change my mind. Mm -hmm. I I am open to having my mind changed if I can have like good, good reasons, but I just don't, I just think that there's too much like in scripture that goes against universalism.
0: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think that, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, David Bentley Hart's book, that all shall be saved Mm -hmm. and he's kind of like defending universalism. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Uh, but I think that someone like analyzed like explicit, like attacking language that isn't like trying to communicate uh, an argument, but it's more of like name calling, like anyone who doesn't hold a universalist view is a blah, 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 you know? And (laughs) apparently that fills up a good portion of the book And it just seems that he's trying to, you know, defend a position that he feels like that he's been backed into because of writings. And I don't know. To me, from what I've read about it, it just seems like a kind of book that's written in order to try to prove yourself right because you want to be right when you're failing to humble yourself and just change your view and admit that you're wrong, you know.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've known he was a universalist for a couple of years. Um, The thing... I think, um, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead to the universalist part because I haven't read it yet, but the most convincing argument I've ever heard for universalism comes from the parable of the lost sons. You know, like both of them have their own ways of living outside of the presence or the party of the father, you know? You have the younger son, obviously, who goes away and ends up realizing, in essence, the presence of the father is a richer, better experience for him than all the pleasures of the world. Whereas the older brother removes himself from the party, and um, I was actually reading about this last night in Rob Bell's book. You know, he's like, "You haven't even given me a goat," and apparently, a goat is like the leanest. Like, it's not like a fattened calf, but it's like the lean. Tough. Yeah, it's like not a great animal. He's like, "You haven't even given me this," and I've done nothing but work for you and please you, and and God, and the the father's response is, um, you know, everything I've ever had is has always been yours. And that makes sense because if half of his estate went to the younger son, everything left over would be to the older son. So like factually, it all would be the older son's inheritance. Um, but the older son just hasn't realized that or been able to accept it. He's felt like he has to continually work for it. Um, and so it's like he can choose to go into the party or he can choose to stay outside the party. And at the end of the parable, he's left outside. and You never find out what he does. Um, But I think, like, the idea was, like, um, anything else we could possibly choose, like, the pleasures of the world, lust, sex, hedonism, um, are so far below the pleasures of knowing God that Jesus uses that extreme language just to show the difference in the, um, the pleasures. Like, kind of like when he says, if you want to follow me, you must hate your own family. Like he's talking about like degrees or like extents, not like, you know, beat up your siblings and, you know, punch your parents in the face, but more like the degree should seem that way. And so (coughs) (coughs) that would just mean the purpose of evangelism for universalist would be to, to get people to enter into this joyful presence sooner than later, because that's how good it is, which I don't know if that's a strong enough argument like the degree to which they could be saved for like these 40 years, 40 years sooner in light of eternity. I don't know. It's, it's,
1: no, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just think that's super weak. It's like, why would I exert my efforts to do that when I know that everyone's just going to be saved in the end because I feel bad that they're not experiencing it now? Like, mm-hmm. is me feeling bad good enough reason to exert time and energy? to share the message of what God has done in Jesus when I could be, you know, not sacrificing as much so I can spend more time with my wife and kids or yeah. learning how to play piano or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to the purgatory guy because that'll be really interesting. Like, yeah, because that, that that seems like lot. there's some logic to it. You know, like, if we tell people about Jesus now, that'll save them time in purgatory. But... If we don't, they'll still have a chance to, like, behold him and then make their decision. So that'll be interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I read his response, I was already thinking, like, oh my goodness, this is going to be so much, like, moral theology, like, you know, magisterium, natural law type of stuff. Because, I mean, you have to be Roman Catholic to defend purgatory. Uh, And I'm kind of not looking forward to wading through all that because they just do all this rigmarole it seems like i actually used to listen to roman catholic radio like every single day when i was in seminary in michigan and i actually called in one time to ask about uh not purgatory but indulgences so mm-hmm. i'm getting off topic now but uh a lot of people would talk about purgatory and the guy would try to defend it and uh, he used like this one passage i think it was like in first or second timothy or something it's like oh yeah it says this and i had my bible right there opened it up and i'm like maybe, went to the Greek text. I was like, no, it does not mean that at all. Like, <laughs> I don't know. So it seems like...
0: Uh, Which passage was it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I think it was like 1 Timothy. It's like one.
0: Was it the one about baptism for the dead? Mm,
1: no, I don't think that's in the pastoral epistles.
0: That was in 1 Corinthians 15.
1: Yeah. Completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I think they make their strongest case from the uh, Apocrypha, which is since we want to consider canonical. But.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, have you read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis?
1: I haven't, actually.
0: Oh, that's my favorite book, and I think that's informed a lot of my view. Um, it seems like Lewis in that book kind of builds the argument that, like, just, like, different ways in which human nature will just keep us folded in, our, folded in on ourselves eternally— and just, like, kind of just, like, so sucked into yourself that you can't just, like, relinquish that and, like, give all to Christ. And if you were able to just do that, then, you know, you could just go enjoy him forever. But instead, you just, like, are absorbed into yourself and into your ideologies and um, and all this stuff. And it's really good. It's my favorite book of all time. But I think it it, it implies... He says at the beginning, this is a fictional book, but it implies that these people are like in a place of purgatory where the heavenly people can communicate with the people who are in hell. But the the, the real difference is that the people in heaven are real and the people in hell are like translucent, like barely real. They can't even pick up a leaf because it's so heavy. And like, because they're just so glued into these things that have never mattered. And um, the best line in the whole book is when he says, um, he asks one of the heavenly people, he says, um, are, so are heaven and hell just states of mind? And he says, well, hell may just be a state of mind, but heaven on the other hand is everything that is real. And at the end of all things, everything will be shaken and only the unshakable will remain. And so like, there's this idea that, um, I don't know, it kind of gets into all like platonic philosophy and the matrix and like are you you actually holding on to like reality or are you just holding on to things that will evaporate and at the end of all things you'll open your hands and they'll just be empty and you're just like left with nothing and then you know if those were your gods then what do you do you cease to exist or else you just like suffer that loss for eternity I don't know yeah
1: I mean it's kind of hard to to, like it's like it's hard to think about nothing and Mm -hmm. non-existence know what non-existence means because we can say that word but then to contemplate its substance is like impossible because you're trying to find non-existence you know mm-hmm. uh, but it's still I think <coughs> it's helpful in giving um, a, a framework for faithful living now mm-hmm. and we can exp- I've been so I'm probably
0: getting on the bandwagon a little too late but I've been reading a lot about the Enneagram lately <laughs>
1: and uh, it's just been you know helpful for me. And, uh, and are you uh, a
0: five?
1: Uh, I'm an eight.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, but just seeing how in human relationships how we can go to you know places of health or disintegration, mm-hmm. um, and how that just kind of rings true with with life, and wondering if uh, you know and. terms of annihilationist view of hell, is just a place of consistent, you know, folding in on yourself, disintegration, not realizing, you know, the life that is is found in in Christ by the Spirit, uh, because you don't have the, you know, spirit to, you know, yeah, you, the source of life. Instead, it's just a consistent uh, disintegration of everything that you were supposed to be but aren't. Hmm. And you, you know, you, you fall away.
0: That's interesting. So would that be annihilation, or would that be eternal conscious torment, if you're just continually, like, you know, cut in half, and then cut in half, and then cut in half, you know, eternally?
1: I mean, maybe that would be a eternal conscious torment. Um, but I think that, you know, when you disintegrate into nothingness, like, it has to end. Right. But, yeah, you know, at the same time, too, it's like, uh one thing I'm interested is interestingly enough that the eternal conscious torment guy didn't hold up or didn't talk about, you know, in Colossians where it talks about, you know, God holds all things together. Like hmm. so even hell and the demons and Satan, like all things. It's like like and when what that has to contribute to the conversation about about hell. Because I mean if God does hold all things, you know, together, um, you know, people who are created in the world will, they just, like, how how will they cease to exist be annihilated, so to speak, if God holds all things together? Mm-hmm. Or is just he deciding to not hold you together anymore?
0: Um, mm. Well, when, do you think, I think often I've heard, I might be having just a brain fart, but we often hear that, like, Hell is wherever God is not, so if you're outside of his presence, then you're in hell. Is that biblical, or is that just kind of a conjecture? Because I know it talks about like being outside the city, or like who will be cast outside the gates, but is that yeah. the same as being cast outside of God's presence? Because like one of them mentioned in the responses, um, it said, fear, fear the one who can punish his spirit and soul in hell. And they said, that's not Satan, because Satan's there being punished with you. But if you're in the presence of God as a punisher, you're not away from his presence either. You're experiencing him as a uh, punisher, you know?
1: Right. The punisher.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: And I I mean, perhaps that's a conjecture. I mean, maybe it's just a way of for eternal conscious torment people to softly say that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to. The eternal, consciously tormented, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was a softer way of, of saying that, so people yeah. are like, Oh, that's repulsive,
0: but it does seem like that's a better point for annihilationism. If God holds all things together, you're outside of his presence, you're not held together anymore, <laughs> um, right? And then another thought I just had, too, this just popped into my head. Um, uh, who said it? it was a philosopher? The argument that. um, Something is better than nothing, but there is something. Therefore, it's be- uh, what it? you know what I'm talking about. There's some philosophical mind Yeah, I'm trying to remember Dr.
1: O'Neill's philosophy class. Was mm-hmm. it like um,
0: something like, exists, which is better than nothing existing? But they use that word "better" as if it's like common sense. You know, like yeah. oh, it's better. But so even philo- even philosophy, however, they got to that conclusion that existence is better than non-existence um would imply that to have eternal life is better than to cease existing. You know, even philosophically they would kind of I I I want to look at more into that now. You know what I'm talking about like that I'm sure you could just google like existing is better than not existing or something. But yeah, cuz then <coughs> I was talking to my dad about this a couple of days ago cuz he's a pastor too. And he said he couldn't hold that, he couldn't hold the annihilation view because he doesn't think like it's just enough um, for what people have done against God. He said it diminishes God's justice. And I was like, well, like we mentioned earlier, the annihilationist view doesn't mean that at death you just cease to exist. There still, still seems to be some amount of punishment before the cessation of existence. But,
1: yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, you know, when Jesus died on the cross. Rose again from the dead. Those who don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains upon. It's like, you know, God's wrath. Like Jesus, yeah, took it, and you don't. You don't have to.
0: Hmm. But if
1: you decide not to believe in Jesus. You you take it.
0: Yeah, the bigger question for me though is for people who have never heard it. You know, and you go to Romans one and the whole. Uh,
1: they're without excuse because God is with the <laughs> properties, you
0: know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but what are they without excuse from? From just knowing that there's a God, or from knowing Ye- Yeshua's name specifically, or this kind of ties into a thought I had recently. Um, I don't know how much you follow all my blogs. I write a lot. I write way too much. But the other day. I wrote one about. Um, I mentioned the in Mark five, the demoniac from uh, the Gerasene or G- Garridines, wherever that is. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah,
1: little translations of it, so don't
0: worry. yeah. Um, the guy who had the the legion of demons cast out of him into the two thousand pigs. Yeah, yeah. And he says, "Jesus, I want to follow you." And Jesus says, "No, go into the Decapolis and tell them what God has done for you." And I was thinking about it, and Jesus literally just said, "Go tell them, you know, go spread the gospel, the good news." And literally, all that guy knew was, "I used to have demons in me. This rabbi named Yeshua cast them out of me, and now I don't have them in me anymore." He didn't know about the resurrection or the death on the cross. He didn't know. Uh, we don't it's even. We don't know if he was it's Jewish not or not. not
1: probably slim because he was in the decapolis which is outside of you know judean territory so
0: yeah so was he even jewish we don't know but but his 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 retelling of the good news or the gospel would have been missing so many key elements that we think it has to have in it so i was think i was wondering about that like or would would that guy have just been like planting seeds and a couple of years later, when word of Jesus resurrection spread with it, like everything would connect or like, you know, like, but he, we, if we heard a gospel message, if someone stood up and said, here's the good news of Jesus, I had a demon in me and now I don't <laughs> the end <laughs> we would be like, wait, that's not the gospel. And yet that's all that guy had to tell, you know, and he's not the only one in scripture that did that either. So or were they like telling complete gospel, you know? So I've been wondering, just because it doesn't have like the four-act gospel that we're familiar with, like, God is holy, we're, we've all sinned. Jesus died and took our punishment. Believe in him and you'll live. Don't believe in him and you go to hell. Like if it doesn't have all four acts, is it still possible to be saved? Like, what exactly is absolutely essential for that salvation? Yeah,
1: and I mean, perhaps it has, I don't want to be careful because I might be going on a podcast, but I'm just going to say it. But perhaps it might have, you know, changed, so to speak, over time. And that, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, you know, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're like, oh, man. And then Jesus is like, hey, let me open up the scriptures to you. And they're like, oh my goodness, we understand everything now. This all makes sense. And mm-hmm. then, you know, like, but then even too, like even later on in Acts, um, you know, there's some disciples, or there's some you know, Apollos preaching the gospel. And then it's like, Wow, you're a really great preacher. Do you know about the baptism of the spirit? No, I only know about the baptism of John. Oh, well let me tell you about the baptism of the spirit. And mm-hmm. then oh, they just like took off. And so there seems to be like degrees, but now as it has been hashed out over the centuries. We're not, we're not there anymore, you know? And so even though that these events can be happening in scripture, we can think to ourselves, well, now we have, you know, a a, a full message to train people in, to make disciples, you know, to share the gospel. And so there could be like incomplete understandings, like a gospel message and mm-hmm. someone goes in, like in to Apollos and clarifies and then things, you know, click. But then I guess your question would be, is that garbled gospel message enough? And my answer is this, I I I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky.
1: And I would rather trust God's goodness and letting his w- bits of his word work in people's hearts uh rather than for me to say who's in and who's out. Like mm-hmm. for me, I know that look, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you aren't walking by the Spirit (laughs) and you aren't, you know, doing your best given the circumstances to participate in a faith community called the church, um, then chances are you might not be in Christ like you think you are. Yeah. Um, But, you know, for like these, you know, Muslims have, like, dreams and stuff and come to know Jesus through that. It's just like, well, it doesn't really fit in my paradigm, but I just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more willing to be open to those things, that God is bigger than my worldview. I mean, I'm literally preaching that this Sunday, that God is bigger than our worldview. Mm. Um, and that when God tries to work, we commit idolatry when we try to stuff him inside of our worldview um, because we're more comfortable with worshiping what we know rather than what God is trying to expand our hearts and minds to receive, namely Him and how He works in ways that go beyond our understanding. Nothing Mm -hmm. against, of course, Scripture. Like, God won't be like, hey, go kill that person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Because killing is good.
0: Um, (laughs) No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've been realizing lately is how, how much I have stuffed... My interpretation of theology into the Bible, like,
1: but you can't you, avoid that either.
0: Yeah, well, but even in ways that could be avoidable too, I think. Like, mm. um, with hell is a big one. Um, or for instance, have you read anything by Peter Enns? I
1: haven't.
0: I'm reading this book right now. It's called uh, "The Bible Tells Me So." It's super interesting. It's like a rereading of the Bible and way, ways that predominantly American evangelicalism has read theology into the Bible rather than just seeing what it says. He talks about a conversation he had with a Jewish person, and um, he was like a Jewish scholar, and he used the term like, you know, Genesis three: the fall of man with original sin." and the guy's like, "Wait, what?" And he's like, "You know, the fall." Original sin, Genesis 3, is like, it doesn't say that in there. And they open up Genesis 3, and sure enough, it doesn't say the fall of man, you know, the original sin, original guilt. Like most of the terms that we use when describing that idea or that concept
1: come from Augustine.
0: Yeah, and it's not even present in Genesis 3. Um, And Adam also is barely referenced throughout the Old Testament until Paul kind of resurrects him in, you know, Romans 5 and uses him as that image. Yeah. And First Corinthians fifteen, yeah. and um, and and Paul, yeah. And so that's kind of been on my mind a lot too, as far as like was Adam symbolic or how did they actually read Adam? Um,
1: I read that post of yours about that.
0: Yeah, I read a couple regarding that this past week, but um, yeah. So it's been it's been interesting trying to like undo some things that I assume about scripture and then read it on the page as it is. And, um, so that's been really interesting saying, you know, and the Bible study I go to on Tuesday nights. Um, so two nights ago we, we went through first Corinthians 15 and then had a talk about like, um, I mean, I, I, generally teach them for about half an hour after we read it. So I was talking to them about like the understanding of resurrection and you have the four different sects of Jew- Judaism at the time and how they understood resurrection, like Sadducees were against it, Pharisees, you know <coughs>
1: Yeah, the Saints,
0: yeah. And then the the thing I always tell people is your view of heaven and hell probably comes from Dante and not the Bible. And um and so I think that's generally true of most western people. Um but you look at what it actually does say um, in this case, about, like, heaven, um, which I, I don't I try not to use that term because it's not biblical, but, like, resurrection, you know, and yeah. then life with Christ. Or, or
1: new heavens and new earth, or even or right. new creation.
0: Exactly, or, or, yeah. On the
1: N.T. when route.
0: Yeah, because when, when, they, when they use the term new heavens new earth, they're talking about, like, they're ancient people. So they're referring to, like, new sun, stars, clouds, and moon, and then everything else on earth, you know, so... I don't think the Bible ever uses the word heaven as referring to like the place you go when you die, you know, like.
1: As a disembodied soul.
0: Yeah, that doesn't really, that doesn't really come about, so.
1: Which means, so sometimes I've wondered that when I die, will I instantly be resurrected in my body at the end of time? Because as I die, I will like cease to have an awareness of time. You know, you you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And because, you know, there's people who's like, you know, hey, when you die, you'll be, you know, with in the presence of Jesus, but your soul will go there. But you'll, you know, your body will be rejoined with your soul and your resurrected body. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I wonder, like, if I'm dead, I have no (laughs) awareness of time. If I die, will I instantly just be like at the end of time with everybody because I have no concept of it?
0: Wouldn't that be the soul sleep theory?
1: It would be the soul sleep theory.
0: Um, well, the only thing that I have against that would be what Jesus says to the thief on the cross: "Today That's you'll true. be with me in paradise. in
1: paradise." Right, and I think there's also uh, passages on Philippians one twenty-one, where or twenty twenty-five, where Paul's saying, like, you know, is it better if I die to go be with Christ, mm-hmm. or you know? But sometimes I wonder that, but I know that. I do, I do have to rethink that about the disembodied soul and mm-hmm. wondering
0: if that is, you know. And this is a whole different rabbit trail. <laughs> um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because it's we've been on almost an hour. But like, yeah. Um, the idea, <laughs> the idea. I love this of ghosts, and um, like I think that depending on how you read, uh, what is it? First Samuel. When they go to the Witch of Endor. Right,
1: oh, yeah, the Witch of Endor to resurrect Samuel.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Was it Samuel or Eli?
1: Samuel.
0: Is it Samuel? And he comes yeah. back, and he's like, why'd you wake me from my sleep? Um, but the thing is, you can go online and read countless accounts of people, like, like, with actual legitimate ghost stories, and you're like, there's, like, too many of these to be... Um, for it to just be people's imaginations, you know? Um, the, a lot of people might say it's just demons masquerading as as those people.
1: Definitely demons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I actually did a couple papers on demonology when I was at Moody, and they're fascinating. Um, because, like, I don't know, what do you do with that categorically? Like, would that be maybe under the category of purgatory or, like, spirits that haven't
1: I would go to my brothers and sisters in Africa and let them teach me. That's what I would
0: do. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So all that—I mean—that's a whole different can of worms. Um, I don't want to get too off track, but I love talking about that kind of stuff because or it's that, super that's interesting. The
1: if you're into Ghostbusters,
0: yeah, yeah, just vacuum them up. <laughs> Send them where but, they belong. Uh, are you,
1: Ethan? Are you in in seminary right now at Denver?
0: Um, I have been for two years, but this semester I'm taking it off because I can't afford it. I'm trying to figure out all the financial stuff. And um, last semester I was. This semester I'm not. I'm ho- okay. hoping to finish up. I might. I don't know if I'll do an MDiv or an MA. Okay. But
1: I mean, <coughs> yeah. if you like Greek and Hebrew, do the MDiv. But if you don't,
0: do the MA. <laughs> Honestly, I've never taken a Greek or Hebrew class. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure, I wish that I could just skip ahead to just knowing them <laughs> and not having to learn them.
1: Like in the Matrix, you can just like upload, like, I know Kung Fu. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I know Koine Greek now. Yeah, I it's wish. Is actually
1: pronounced Koine? No, I'm just kidding.
0: How is it pronounced?
1: <laughs> I, I, I was just messing with you. You pronounced it right, but I was just trying to be a, oh. <laughs> a pretentious.
0: Is it Koine? Co- How do you say it?
1: <laughs> Koine.
0: Oh, is that what I said? Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Kanye West. Kanye
1: West? Have you listened to his new album? Mm Mm-hmm. It's really good. You like it? I did. And it's it's amazing that he dropped his Sunday Service Choir album on Christmas Day, too.
0: Yeah. You should... Actually, the same podcast, Preston Sprinkle's podcast, he talks to a black inner-city pastor the whole time they're talking about Kanye West, And the black pastor's theory, or his take on it, is that Kanye is doing this purely because people have told him he can't. And, like, that's why he befriended Trump, is because people on the left told him, you can't do this. And then he went and did it. So they're saying it's more of a political slash artistic move and less of, like, an actual... This is from this black pastor, not me saying this, but, like, he's like he's like, I'm hopeful. Like, I hope that Kanye had this no Jesus moment. But if you think about it, he's been singing gospel music for a decade and this seems to line up artistically with the pattern that he's established of people think I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. People think I'm because a couple months before he dropped that album, he puts out a song with Lil pump, um, which almost every other word's the F word. It's like, I'm a sick, um, I like a yeah. sick, f- I like a quick, f- and it's like yeah. the most just dis- like nasty song you've ever heard, and then suddenly this, and you're like, you know, the other thing that pastor said, which was interesting, is that no, no Christian church leader would <clears throat> see someone get radically saved like that, and six months later put them on the stage to preach from the pulpit. You know, no like. Um, the only reason Joel Osteen is having Kanye speak for him is because he's this world famous celebrity, not because he's some biblical expert. You know, right. he's still in the "I'm attending Bible study" phase of his. You know, he's not even at the freshman and Bible college level yet. You know what I mean? He's a baby, and and yet he's like this new church leader, which is a really strange marriage of celebrity and church leadership. And if you think about it logically.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, I'm just, yeah, it's all bonkers to me. I'm just minding my own business and my own church study, just reading the Greek New Testament, reading the scriptures, mm-hmm. just preaching to my little flock of 50 people, you know, and all this is going around, and I'm just like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep studying, growing, learning, <laughs> learning, love my wife, love my kids, write a scathing political article come November, and then get back, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, yeah. my platform is really strange, and I I tend to try to address mainstream happenings, you know? So, when it first came out, I wrote an article about, like, the hermeneutics of Kanye West. I don't know if you saw that one, but it's like, you can listen to his music purely as just music and be edified by it, by the words of it, by the worshipful sentiments of it, Um, you know, like... You don't have to take into account his personality, his backstory, his politics, and you know you can just enjoy that, and that's a perfectly good Christian thing to do. So, you know, on the one hand, there's that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. it's just wild. Usually, I just yeah, of late, I just mind my own business. Everyone's going crazy. I'm like, I'm just gonna play ukulele, make bacon, <laughs> macaron, make snack around, make baked macaroni and cheese and uh read paul and the gift so that's <laughs> that's, that's good that's
0: i read this you. quote recently it was something like the good of the world will come about by men who lived quiet lives and now rest in un- unvisited graves i was like whoa yeah you know. is that the thessalonians where it says do your best to live a quiet and Humble life, or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's Second uh, Thessalonians three. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, live a quiet life, work with your hands, and um, yes, the little people do little things, and uh, that's that is. You know, sometimes some people do big things. Like if you're, um, uh, uh, dang, Richard Bacham and writing these groundbreaking texts. Every book that you write <laughs> is just groundbreaking. Yeah, because you're just a groundbreaking person. Great. Yeah. Uh, but not everyone can 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 do that, and that's completely okay. But anyway, I have to get up tomorrow at three uh, thirty. I have a flight that leaves at five, um, and the airport's forty five minutes away because I live. Yeah, in- yeah. But I've appreciated our, our talk about uh, hell, and um, I'm looking forward to um, perhaps uh, next Friday talking about the annihilationist perspective.
0: And yeah,
1: um, I, I think that chapter will be really good because. Uh, it seems like uh, Stackhouse is really even keel and balanced. and seems like a clear thinker and writer, so I'm looking forward to
0: that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah this is really good, man. I appreciate your time, and hopefully we'll get Frank in here too. But that would be really yeah, good. I
1: don't know what uh, – I've never met Frank in person. I've
0: what? I'm sure that. you guys bumped because we were there at the same time.
1: Yeah, but I don't think I've actually ever met him.
0: No, yeah you barely even knew me, you know? I, I think I remember a couple of meals with you at lunch and stuff, but that's it. Yeah,
1: But here we are talking. But, yeah, I wonder what he's up to now.
0: But I don't know. I don't really – I didn't know him super well either. I probably knew him about as well as I knew you at Moody. Okay. So, yeah. But that's why I love that discussion group because everybody is just like – it doesn't matter. You just – you're just chatting. Yeah,
1: you just post whatever. It's like, – Yeah.
0: yeah there's a group that went to Princeton and did stuff and they're doing mm-hmm. things. And, and now they're not Christians. <laughs> I don't really? Did you see that comment by Andrew Song? He was like, I don't identify as Christian anymore. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. He used to identify as conservative in his theology. But oh,
1: man. I thought that, uh, I, see, there's a post that I think uh, Andrew Song, he... Uh, I went to a party at Princeton or something from, with other Princeton people, and he was like, "What does this have to do with Christ?" Or something right. Like. Yeah. But maybe he was—I don't
0: know.
1: Yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. Like I said, "I'm just doing my own thing, preaching the gospel to my little flock over here, and watching moody people apostatize left <laughs> and right." So that's
0: just. Where do you live?
1: Uh, so I live in Pantego, North Carolina. Population 175. Wow. Uh, I mean, the nearest town is 30 minutes away. It's about 9,500 people. Um, there's another town. It's about 3,000 people, about 20 minutes away. But um, dang, yeah. So yeah, my, my house is right next to the church because it it's the parsonage. There's a Christian school across the street, K through 12. But other than that, it's just corn fields and a solar panel field for <laughs> energy.
0: Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll let you go get ready and I'm going to go hang out with my roommates. But it was really good to catch up with you, man. And uh, yeah. we'll do it again next week, hopefully.
1: Sounds good. You have a good night.
0: All right. You too, man. See ya.
1: All right.